Powered by MPB, this is Chalkboard Chat, an MPB education podcast, hosted by Jermaine Flood and Tara Wren. To hear this episode and more, visit education.mpbonline.org or download the MPB public media app to listen on your iPhone or Android device. Welcome to Chalkboard Chat. Jermaine Flood in with you today, and my guest today possibly needs no introduction. She is an established author, department chair, and associate professor of English at Jackson State University, named the Eudora Welty Research Fellow in 2013, and Tougaloo College's 2014 Humanities Teacher of the Year. Also, the founder of Mojo, that's Mothers Obtaining Justice and Opportunities, that's a nonprofit organization. In addition to all of that, she serves as Mississippi's capital, city of Jackson's first lady and wife of Shokoi Antar Lumumba. He's the 53rd mayor of Jackson. And of course, I want to go ahead and welcome her. This is Dr. Ebony Lumumba. Welcome to Chalkboard Chat, Dr. Lumumba. Thank you. This is so exciting. And that was such a dynamic, energetic introduction. I hope I live up to all I try to give you the most Apollo introduction that I I can. I felt the love. <laughs> yes. So I'm so glad that you are here on Chalkboard Chat. Of course, you are in the MPB podcast family already. So welcome to the new show. I guess you would call this the sister podcast of everybody. I'm the baby sister. I'm new. So, so glad that you are here. So we'll just go ahead and get started. I always open up with just a simple question. What is the fondest memory of a chalkboard from your childhood? Oh, my goodness. So because I think I've always just been led and uh, designed to be a teacher, my fondest memory is actually not of a chalkboard, but something that I used as a chalkboard as a child. So my parents had this painting that I think my mom had gotten from Goodwill or some, you know, someplace where she didn't necessarily care how we destroyed it. And I would use a pen cap and pretend that I was writing on this painting that came from wherever and teach my stuffed animals. And so that's my fondest memory because I think that that was my jumping off point, right? My origin story for being an educator. So great. Now I wasn't doing any kind of teaching anybody. <laughs> I don't know what the subject matter was, right? Like, I, but I was, I was, you know, getting them in their place, those stuffed animals. and Right. I was the type that just wanted to go bang the erasers out there just to see the dust fly. So kudos to you. I love the fact that that was your starting point to education, to teaching. So that's where exactly where we're going to get into. So I wanted to let my audience know we're going to dissect Ebony. No. All right. This is going to be a one-on-one with Dr. Ebony Lumumba. So we're going to talk about her education journey. We're also going to touch on the Mississippi Book Festival, Right on Mississippi, the podcast. We'll be talking about her mojo organization, of course, and the role of first lady in education. So let's jump right on in. I wanted to go ahead and get started with your education journey from start to finish in a cliff notes sort of way. (laughs) But yeah, from start to finish, like, you know, what kind of from that story that you told from, you know, using the painting as a chalkboard from that to when you now sitting as department chair at Jackson State University in the Department of English, just give me a little bit about that journey. Yeah, and it's been a remarkable journey that I'm so grateful for. My parents did eventually buy me a chalkboard. <laughs> I, 
got me off of their artwork. And, and so I really, again, do consider that my origin story, right? I'm really thankful for that question, but I'm a proud product of Jackson Public Schools. So I attended North Jackson Elementary, where I met my husband when we were in kindergarten. Um, we weren't dating then, but uh, th- th- that's where it all started. Right. And I transferred to what was then Power APAC. It's now Ida B. Wells APAC, a wonderful name. I'm so excited about that shift where I connected my academic life with the performing arts and teaching is a performance. And so I'm grateful for that experience and all of my peers that came through that program, went on to Chestane, Murrah High School. I spent a little time at St. Joe Catholic School, just a year, but I I graduated from Jackson Public Schools, went on to Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia, following in my older sister's footsteps, Georgia State University for my master's and University of Mississippi for my doctorate. And those three post-secondary degrees were all in English. And I realized now that I grew up in a household that really valued literacy. I had a membership to the Scholastic Reading Club. So I got the little free cloth toes and I was so excited when books would come in the mail for me. They would have my name on them. And I read them through until the binding was broken, until pages were missing. I remember reading Where the Red Fern Grows in third grade. That was the first novel that I finished on my own. And so I was really proud of that accomplishment and discovering Eudora Welty in middle school and Miss Allegreza's language arts class, uh, discovering Toni Morrison, my senior year of high school and my AP English course, and just being truly moved by the way that we could tell stories and sort of document our lives through the written word and also how therapeutic it is to write and to read and to share the experiences of other cultures, communities, or our own culture across communities in the written word. And so my entire journey, the cliff note is that it's all really been driven by reading and literacy and the love of stories and books and mythologies and all of those things that connect us with one another as, you know, humanity. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to talk about your position right now as department chair of English. I know you came from Tougaloo. What was the transition from there going into now sitting as full department chair over an English department? Has it been challenging? Has it been enjoyable, rewarding? What have you gotten out of that? So I was department chair for five and a half years at Tougaloo, uh, their English department, English and foreign languages. And so, uh, but there still was a learning curve, moving from a small private HBCU to a state-sponsored, much larger HBCU, the largest department by faculty on JSU's campus during a global pandemic. Right. Uh, So as you can see, I'm not afraid of a challenge or I'm a masochist, (laughs) one or the other. Right. (laughs) One or the other. I just like to abuse myself. But it has been a gnarly transition, but one that I value, I, you know, quote my dad here with saying that it's been character building. And so I appreciate the challenge and the shift in shift in culture and environment. I also appreciate the, the links that I'm able to make between the two HBCUs that are housed in our city, identifying the similarities, but also the differences and ways that we can connect these students who have similarities and differences in their own experiences. So I have welcomed the challenge and I've been supported by some really great folks, some colleagues and staff members, mentors and mentees across both institutions. And I kind of, I, I joke that 
I've kind of I'm standing on both sides uh, at Tougaloo unofficially just as a supporter, a yeah. major cheerleader for that space. And then also at JSU as a native Jacksonian, right? Somebody who is from the city of Jackson did not attend JSU, but I've always loved the institution. We grew up going to the games and being taught by professors from that school in one way or the other, being in the community with people who had graduated, having family members who have gone to the school. So I feel really blessed. It feels really special to be able to have this sort of career history of being an instructor and department chair at both institutions at this time. Right. Good stuff. Especially yeah. now at Jackson State. It's such a lively time with Deion Sanders coaching. Yeah. <laughs> the football I mean, team. So the funny thing is that, you know, we both kind of came on board to JSU at the same time. So I'm grateful for Coach Prime, like taking the pressure off. All eyes were on him and I was able to really have a very calm onboarding where, you know, there wasn't much attention placed on my transition. A lot of folks don't even know that I've transitioned from one institution to the other. So I, I credit Coach Prime for, just, you know, like taking the, the pressure off. Taking yeah. Got your hands in both of those buckets still. Yeah, yeah for, <laughs> now, sure, for sure. Now, non-seamless transition, but I wanted to go back to books and your love of reading. And just kind of, you know, full disclosure to me, I am a avid reader as well. And just a little bit of back history. I was not as formal with my reading. I had this penchant for wanting to go to libraries and take books and never return them. Whether... whether it be the school library or the, the city library. And I would always get fussed at because my mom would get the, the fines and be like, you need to find this book and take it back. So let's get into the Mississippi Book Festival and reading off of that transition there. But I wanted to talk about that Mississippi Book Festival held on the state capitol building and grounds in Jackson. You are involved with the Mississippi Book Festival. Tell me about your involvement with that. So my involvement with the book festival has really matured over the years in a way that I'm really grateful for. My initial exposure to the book festival several years ago was as a panelist. So one of my articles had recently been published at that time in an anthology, and I was just kind of asked to come and talk about that work with some other scholars that I get the privilege of working with. And I fell in love. I thought this is amazing. It was my first time being at the festival. I think it may have been the second year, but my husband and I spent the day there and we ate from the food trucks and we went to the panels and we bought books and t-shirts. And I was just so excited to have our capital city highlighted in this way, have literacy highlighted in this way, and just to have a really fun family experience that surrounded Mississippi and books, because that's the nexus of my sweet spot, right? Mississippi and books. So that matured into moderating a panel, I think the very next year, and connecting with Holly Lang, who is the current executive director of the festival, and her asking you know, me if, how I felt about hosting a podcast that would support the festival and advertise some of the authors that come to our home state and city to talk about books and to talk about their work and to engage with our residents. And so I was honored, floored. We talked about it and molded over over emails and text messages and phone calls, came up with the name right on Mississippi, which I think that was my idea. Holly says it was, and I don't remember because uh, there were so many wonderful conversations about how to make that live. And, you know, she and her team, they did all of the groundwork to bring it to life. And my first interview was Angie Thomas. Yes. uh, Who I just, she knows I'm like her number one fangirl. 
And <laughs> it was so organic. And that same day that we recorded the first cycle of the first episodes of Right on Mississippi, which is, you know, there's a play on words there, obviously, but yeah. Uh, I think I interviewed Salman Rushdie and uh, John Meacham. It was just this all-star lineup of writers from all of these different genres. I mean, I think I was shaking yeah. as I was hearing Salman Rushdie because, you know, I studied him in graduate school. So I felt like we got a chance to talk to these folks in a way that they weren't used to being interviewed that centered on literature, obviously, but also just culture. And we weaved in Mississippi with literally every interview, some sort of way. And it just, um, folks loved it. And I had a really great time. The authors were so gracious to give us their time and that grew. And so now it's grown to um, this podcast where, you know, I pop in from time to time as the host, but the hosts have changed. KSA Lehman has served as a host, Ellen Rogers, just, you know, whoever we can get together at the time to talk about these books and how they connect to what we're going through daily in our society and how Mississippi plays a role in all of that. Now I'm a, I've been a board member and I'm an advisory board member for the book festival. So I get the opportunity to be in the room, right? In the room where it happens when we're scheduling these writers and authors and publishers to be here. And I'm just grateful for that experience because it really means a lot to me for the representation of my home state to be one that is rich with culture and art and beauty and diversity, which is what the book festival, I think, brings to our city and our state. Again, those authors are just so gracious to give us their time and to bless our communities with their their brilliance. Yeah, books are always a great thing. And I love reading. So that's perfect. When it comes down to the podcast world, tell me, how have you been liking the reception that you've gotten from the Ride on Mississippi episodes? Oh, I love it. I mean, it comes from folks from every walk of life, which is rewarding and really remarkable. You, you'd be surprised at the folks who are like, I really loved this episode with Casey Sepp, or I really loved this episode with Richard Ford. For me, that's been rewarding, just walking in the community and folks will have listened to a podcast that we recorded a couple years ago, but they just found out about it. As a matter of fact, First Lady Jill Biden, uh, the first thing that she said to me when we had the opportunity to meet was that she wanted to talk about the podcast. Oh, right my gosh. Oh so we got some national attention on our little podcast, and that has been very cool. And just know these authors, again, how gracious they are and how excited right. they are to just talk about what they may not get the opportunity to talk about all the time when they're on their you know, publicity tours or promoting their books. I had a really wonderful discussion with Richard Ford. And for me, it was just full circle because that was another author that I studied in graduate school. And you feel like you get the sense of who an author is by reading their writing. But I can say that I I don't think that that's the case, really like meeting and talking to some of these authors in person, just humanize them more for me. And I hope it does the same thing for our listening audience and um, the first lady. Right, of course. So, dream interviewees, Dr. Jill Biden. Yeah, she's got, she's got <laughs> she, that's my. That's one of my dreams. When they gave me the education podcast, I was like, and then she got in office. I was like, oh yeah, that's the dream yeah. interview. And yeah. then second dream interview, Angie Thomas. So, I mean, you just 
you've gotten to touch everybody who I have just a penchant for wanting to sit down and talk with. So just kudos to you for all the work you've done there. Just great stuff. Great stuff. Now to my listener, if you've never listened to Ride on Mississippi, it's a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. And of course, this is brought to you all by Mississippi Public Broadcasting and the Mississippi Book Festival. So I want everybody to go out there and check that out. Now, it's it, so cool. Right, right. Now, in addition to you, me? <laughs> I was about to say, in addition to you doing everything, <laughs> has nothing to do with me. It's you just cool also find time to write and be an author, which I think is amazing. Let's talk about some of your works. I've got a couple maybe here in front of me. The Matter of Black Lives in American Literature, Your Dora Welty's Nonfiction and Photography, as well as a demonstration of life signifying for social justice in Eudora Welty's The Demonstrators. Talk to me a little bit about maybe those two titles and just your start with, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to be an author. What started you off? And, you know, just give so- me that. I can remember being as young as 13 and wanting to be an author and trying to figure out what the trajectory for that would be. As as far as those titles that you've mentioned, I remember also seeing the film The Help and reading the book The Help and wanting to respond to some of the issues that I, I thought existed across those texts or manifestations. And I remember scouring the internet looking for someone who was saying what I was thinking and I couldn't find it. And then like Toni Morrison, who was still living at the time, I just, you know, felt emboldened by the spirit of her work. And she would say, you know, if there's a book that you want to read that's not out there, you've got to write it. And I mean, that was a horrible paraphrase, but that's the general thing. <laughs> she said that. No. <laughs> she said something like that. Okay. And I thought, and I sat up in my little apartment in Oxford, Mississippi. I was a graduate student at the time. And I wrote my first article, which was about the use of language and dialect in Catherine Stockett's The Help, as well as the use of language and dialect in some of Eudora Welty's fiction. And that's really where my publication history started. And so I've just been motivated to, I have these thoughts all the time and they're all, they're everywhere. They're on post-it notes, they're in my notebooks, they're on my cell phone. I get these thoughts and then I just make the opportunity to, to sit down and put them together into something palatable and manageable. But everything that I've published thus far, and I believe that everything that I will publish moving forward deals with really focuses on the existence of Black women and how we are presented, portrayed, illustrated in various realms. And that is something that obviously means a great deal to me within my own identity. I'm raising two daughters with my husband. And so I have this strong, you know, close-knit community of Black women who have supported me, who still support me and guide me through all of these different roles. And so I always find that my work sort of shifts in that direction. And so I'm really writing what I believe, what I've researched and come to know, and what I want other people to have the access to knowing through my work. You mentioned the Wealthy Fellowship from 2013, which seems forever ago. But I spent most of that time delving through Eudora Welty's photography, which a large portion of that is their images of Black communities in the 1930s. And so I want to represent 
what my questions are about communities, my community specifically that wasn't documented in those ways, right? In photographs, because that, I mean, that was a thing of privilege not too long ago to have a, a picture taken right. of you or where you live or what you were like on the daily basis, not all, you know, gussied up or dressed up like we are today. Right, but, right. Um, <laughs> I'm interested in that. I'm interested in, in, you know, the documentation of who Black women have been and who we aspire to be. And so all of my writing moves in that direction. The Matter of Black Lives in American Fiction really grew out of the way that I was negotiating teaching American literature at a, a historically Black college. I was at Two Blue College at the time, and I really took issue with, you know, in the Department of English, one of the major literary canons that we have to teach because that's the expectation within the discipline is American literature. But I knew that as a student of American literature, that I, I rarely saw myself in those narratives. And that made it difficult to really be interested and connect. And so I wanted to transform a normal American literature survey into one where my black and brown students could find themselves and they could, you know, even in the spaces and the silences and the gaps. And so that article grew out of that experience of just negotiating how to make the presence of Blackness, you know, present in ways that it is not apparent across American literature. And, you know, I teach African literature and diasporic literature, all of these communities that connect in some way or intersect in some way based on our social experience. And I don't think that I shouldn't be able to do that, depending on the canon, that I I think it's everywhere, which is another sort of nod to Toni Morrison and her article or, you know, her piece playing in the dark. So, yeah. That, that's that's what motivates me. That's my my drive and my passion in this work. That's good stuff. I love looking at old black photos as well, especially, you know, yeah. like you say, it was very scarce and rare to be able to get a picture yeah. or to take a picture of just a house, you know, and just trying to put those together. So kudos to you for lifting up the black heritage and community and, you know, mm-hmm. just the whole history behind all of that. I thank you so much for that. And your work as an author is just so great. Now, you touched a little bit on you being a mother. So I want to go ahead and segue. This is a little bit smoother of a segue than my earlier one. (laughs) But into your Mojo organization, Mothers Obtaining Justice and Opportunity, the nonprofit organization focused on the academic success and holistic wellness of mothers pursuing undergraduate and graduate education. Talk to me about that a little bit. Give me, you know, what this program is all about and how it can help. Yeah, so this is another, you know, part of my journey that grew out of experience and just kind of honing in on on a need or a necessity. In my first year as a professor at Tougaloo College, I was also pregnant with my first child, our first child, and I noticed that I had students who were also gestating fetuses, right? And who or who were already mothers when they arrived on that campus as a student. And so, you know, it was an opportunity for me to move out of the woe is me, like my back hurts. I don't want to walk these stairs. I'm tired. I've got morning sickness, but I still have to teach in the morning. All of those things, because I realized that I possessed certain areas of privilege that a lot of my students didn't, right? That I had a partner in the home with me, which wasn't the case for some of them, that I had health insurance, that I had a full-time job, that I had flexibility in my full-time job, all of these things. And so I started to notice the ways that, you know, institutions just don't have a framework in place to support this population of students, students who specifically are mothers. And so, you know, I would have female students who would miss class because they were ill at some point in their pregnancy or had a nursing infant. And so 
they were trying to negotiate, should I come to class? Should I bring my baby? Where can I nurse on campus, even if I don't have to bring my baby to class? And in having conversations with some of these students who I still connected with, you know, many of them, I just started to, out of my pocket, start to fund things that they didn't necessarily have access to at the time. So like prenatal vitamins, or I would bring them breakfast because I needed breakfast, right? Let's both eat a banana right before class so that we don't self-destruct or uh, allowing them to, if you got to, you know, not bring your baby to class because that's a liability to that child and these other folks in this classroom. We don't want to make that connection if we don't have to, but go take care of your child and let's develop an alternate curriculum for you to get through the semester and you know, I really realized that there just wasn't resources in place. And so through that, I was able to, on that campus at Tougaloo, identify a room that was for mothers. And there were no restrictions on that room uh, as it was associated with what could happen on campus. So they could nurse their children, they could take a nap, they could do work in a space where they weren't being, you know, singled out as students who were different in this way. I had students recovering from cesarean sections or who had just returned from childbirth. And I thought, you know, just having a space, it is critical for us to realize how much space contributes to our mental and physical wellness. And so having a space that's identified for you, sometimes that's all it takes to help someone to support one another. We were also able to, and focused on establishing community between these students. So these student mothers, as I call them, so that they could generate organic and community-based childcare for one another. Right. If you're in class at 11 and I'm in class at 12, well, we can flip flop on who keeps each other's you know, child while we're in the lecture hall and not have to pay these exorbitant fees for child care. I was able to generate some funding throughout to support book scholarships or tuition assistance, definitely child care supplies. So everything from Pampers and formula to hey, we'll give you 50 bucks to go get your nails done because you've been taking care of a, uh, you know, an infant and going to school, you need time to yourself. So we didn't restrict how that money could be spent. It's just been a really wonderful and organic kind of evolving journey with Mojo. I'm at a new institution. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. So direct services are limited, but we, we were able to do some emergency COVID grants to moms. And again, not restrict how that money could be spent, but just to support your education, your child's education, nutrition, health, all of these things. And we've also been able to donate books to incarcerated mothers who are in edu- enrolled in educational programs. And so it's been a very small effort and it evolves with the need. That's really my hope for this. But I want to continue some aspect of it all of my life because I do know what it feels like to be a student and a mother. I was a graduate student as a mother, but I also don't know what it feels like to be in certain circumstances. And I want to support the education of our women who are also childbearing so that they don't get lost in the shuffle and isolated and not supported. So that in a nutshell is what, what Mojo is. And I don't know where we'll go in the future or what it will look like, but it will always support Um, mothers who are also learners. Right. Good stuff. I love all of that. And it kind of goes back in the hand. I heard you say about the incarcerated mothers, your help with them. July's chalkboard chat series was dedicated to Mississippi prison education and Uh reentry program. So Mm -hmm. such a great deal there. I love all of it. When it comes down to funding, can people still give to Mojo? Sure. So we've got a website, which is just Mojo Mama. 
org, And you can kind of check out some of the work that we have done. There is a donation link there and those funds, you know, we have a little bit of overhead, but they go directly into supporting mothers in one way or the other. And so again, we, we don't restrict the requirements because one of the things that I found as an educator and as an administrator is, you know, we go out for funds and they have to be restricted in all of these ways. So we get rid of the money and just put it into these households. And we bought all sorts of things for mothers because they have expressed a need for it. And we don't want them to feel policed for what their needs are, what their desires are, especially as they're trying to raise their families, support their families and their own education. So yeah, absolutely. Visit us at mojamama.org and check us out. You can also contact us if you've got tangible supplies like diapers or pampers or formula, all of those things. We try to keep a little bit of that in stock, but we also just give that away as the need arises. Right. And when it comes down to mothers who maybe want to reach out, can they do the same thing, the contact? For sure. Yeah. Please reach out. And sometimes and as this has evolved, needs have evolved that we never even imagined. And so I've been able to support women who are post-abortion, which is not something that i imagine when I generated this programming just in mental health or healthcare or, you know, buying books and that sort of thing, because, you know, that's a procedure that they've undergone as well. And while it did not manifest in a child from that circumstance, it still is something that can preclude them from completing their education that's associated, you know, with a mother journey. So, right, right. If there's something we hadn't thought of, let's think of it. Bereaved mothers, another area that we've supported. So this is growing as the need is growing and shifting and evolving and and changing in so many ways. We love women here. We love women. So make sure you go out there, visit Mojo. That's M-O-J-O. That's Mothers Obtaining Justice and Opportunities. So thank you so much for putting together that nonprofit. Thank you for highlighting it. Now you are a woman of many talents. So... And on top of everything we've already talked about, you are the first lady of the capital city of Jackson, Mississippi. And you and Shokwe are just such a great light in the city. I want to go ahead and plug my mom here. So my mom's name is Ruby Williams. I don't know if you can give her a shout out. Miss Ruby. Hello. (laughs) And we are such fans. Mama thinks you are the Michelle and Barack of Jackson. (laughs) We love you, Miss Ruby. We just love you both so much. So I wanted to go ahead and shout her out before we even get started talking about your work as first lady. (laughs) Yes, she's going to be super excited about this. But of course, your work as First Lady, in addition to you being a mother, and in addition to you doing everything else, how do you balance it all? What does your schedule look like? Are you buzzing all the time? (laughs) You know, I, I can't, I don't even know if I can adequately, you know, answer this question. I have no idea. How all of this happens <laughs> by the grace of God. Got right? to be. <laughs> by the grace of God. I mean, we have a wonderful support system. So my parents are here in town. My brother, sister-in-law, my sister-in-law, who is my husband's sister, is in town. And then we've got a bunch of like unofficial, extended, adopted family. And so that's a huge component just having really supportive people to help us with the kids or give us a break or to support us. I mean, that's really the key in any, I think, any occupation, any responsibility to have a strong um, support system that will also keep you grounded. 
And I think besides our support system, gratitude really keeps us grounded. We're just so grateful to be able to serve, you know, this city that grew us, this city that supported us in so many ways. And, you know, we could be doing a number of other things, but to be entrusted with this, we don't take it lightly. And so that will motivate you to kind of get out of the bed and, you know, take that appointment on your calendar because it is a gift to be able to serve people in any capacity, but certainly the people of your hometown. It, you know, it's it's something that's almost indescribable. There's no handbook for how to do that. This, especially, you know, this the first lady role. But I've just been grateful in how folks have been supportive and the people, you know, the people who stop me in the grocery store and say good job or, you know, want to take a picture. The fact that people want you around and want to keep you around means a great deal. So it's day to day, right? It is is day to day with balancing everything. Our children are pros at it. I mean, (laughs) they're nonplussed about all of this. And so that helps keep us grounded as well. And we have grown stronger and stronger as a family unit, my husband and I and the girls, and that has meant the world. And so at the end of everything, when we're closed up in our house and, you know, all four of us were in our our bed last night watching, you know, Disney Junior, (laughs) (laughs) you know, those moments get us through to the next day of responsibilities and challenges and problem solving. So it's it's support and gratitude. Great stuff. Great work with that. So when it comes down to the city of Jackson, what is your hope for education when it comes down to the residents of Jackson? Do you have like a hope or a future where you want to see education go in the capital city? So, yeah, of course, I have a hope. We've got two children in Jackson Public School System, and my husband and I are products of JPS. And I'm really hopeful that folks will begin to highlight, emphasize, underscore the talent that exists in our young people in this city is outstanding. And I hope that that becomes the story. I hope that that becomes the narrative about the young people who are in the scholars who are in our school system. And I hope that we begin to nuance what success looks like for our young people. And so, you know, for so long that's been associated with grades, you know, straight A students get celebrated as they should, but there are students who may not possess straight A's, but are demonstrating talent and ability and creativity and all of these other ways. And so I really would like for us to have a holistic approach to how we celebrate our young people, because I know what they can do and I've seen the fruit of it. And it's just so remarkable. And that sort of encouraging tale can last for generations. And that should be the time capsule for who we have been, how our children are. There is a Kenyan saying that loosely translated, it's a greeting and you ask, how are the children? So instead of saying, hey, Jermaine, how are you? I would greet you and say, hey, Jermaine, how are the children? Yeah. And the response to that is the children are well. And for me, that is such a profound sort of euphemism because the ask is like, how are all of us? And we can tell that the litmus test for that is how our children are doing. And so I really want to celebrate them. They're doing outstandingly well. They are nimble. They are resilient. They are powerfully creative and they are our future. I'm very excited about, you know, as cliche as that sounds, the children are the future very obviously, but our future is very bright because these young people are doing so many wonderful things and we need to know more about it. So that's my hope. 
that for our education systems and our focus on education, we begin to nuance it and celebrate students who may not have the high GPAs, but are still doing so many wonderful things that contribute to who we are and how we are seen. And that becomes the center point, that that becomes common, that that becomes normal. And these young people feel loved and celebrated and supported. They are, but we have to also kind of highlight that. And so that's my hope. Yeah, good stuff. I just thank you so much for joining us here on Chalkboard Chat. This has been one of my favorite interviews. So easy going, so great. The conversation was just good. And to my audience, again, this is Dr. Ebony Lumumba. She's an established author, department chair, and associate professor of English at Jackson State University. She's done it all. She is the founder of Mojo. And of course, she is the first lady of the city of Jackson here in Mississippi. And she's all about education. And she loves books. And so that was the perfect marriage between having Doc on um, Chalkboard Chat. So I just thank her so much for joining us. Dr. Ebony Lumumba, thank you again for coming on. Thank you, Elaine. You're wonderful. Thank you for having me. I thank you so much. And this has been Chalkboard Chat. Class is now dismissed. You've been listening to Chalkboard Chat, an MPB education podcast. To hear this episode and more, visit education.mpbonline.org or download the MPB public media app to listen on your iPhone or Android device. This podcast is hosted with love by ACAST.